Hola y bienvenidos a Foodzone Film. Soy Drew y esta noche me acompaña Scott, que está ahí. Muy uh, bien. <laughs> yes. Uh, hello, I'm Drew. Over there, Scott. Hello. And if my... Well, my Spanish is okay, just my pronunciation's rotten, but it was Spanish. Uh, that may have clued you into what we're going to talk about tonight. Or at least the area of the world the person comes from. Back in 20th century Spain, there was this frightfully awful chap called General Franco, who, well, he made everything jolly unpleasant, all things considered. After this Franco fellow popped his clogs in 1975 and democracy was restored to the country, there was a culture and artistic flourishing throughout Spain, with much freedom of expression and a breaking of taboos often rigorously enforced under the Francoist regime. Perhaps the most notable of these cultural movements was in the capital Madrid, and was known as La Movida Madrileña, or the Madrid scene. One of the leading lights of La Movida Madrileña, and by far the most successful and influential in our particular area of interest, was Pedro Almodóvar. In 1967, at the age of 18, Almodóvar moved to Madrid to become a filmmaker, which turned out to be pretty rotten timing as Franco, yes, him again, had just recently had the National School of Cinema closed. Having no other choice, young Pedro taught himself. Unfortunately, he seems to have been both wonderful teacher and attentive student. Like many filmmakers, he began working with Super 8 and also worked with theatrical group Los Goliardos, where he met Carmen Maura, who would go on to be one of his frequent stars. During this period, he also wrote articles for magazines and newspapers, and even a novel, honing the writing skills that would see him go on to win numerous screenplay awards. He took his early short films around Madrid and Barcelona, becoming well known as, owing to the difficulty of adding sound to the Super 8 film, they were silent, requiring Almodovar himself to play music from a cassette and perform all dialogue and songs at the screenings. Almodovar's films often feature female ensemble casts, LGBT characters, issues of sexuality, families and Catholicism, as well as being marked out by music, bold colours, kitsch and camp and irreverence of cinema. While his work spans genres from darkly comic melodrama to film noir to farce, and sometimes all of these together. Now, Almodovar is one of my favourite directors, and his name has been on our list of potential topics since almost the beginning of this endeavour, but thanks to my elite level procrastination, here we are, a smidge under four years later, finally <laughs> ready to talk about him. Much of that procrastination, which I've come to understand some people apparently pronounce laziness. Um, has been due simply to not knowing which films to cover. But I think in the seven titles we'll be looking at today, we can give you a good taste of Almodovar and hopefully encourage you to check them out. Well, I certainly do, having loved Almodovar since I first saw one of his films, 2004's La Mala Educación, or Bad Education. But I know Scott had seen at least two films prior to that, but was less than impressed, so I'm hoping he's more appreciative of them on a revisit. We'll get into that more as we go along, of course. But uh, is there anything you'd like to mention before we start, amigo mio? No. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, no. Um, I've seen a lot of our films and I appreciate things in them, but uh, I never really thought to go back and delve into his back catalogue, so um, a lot of the things we're covering today are actually new to me and to be honest, the ones I had seen before most of the things, uh, for the most part I couldn't really remember an awful lot <laughs> anyway, so I may as well have been watching them for the first time as well, so. Fair enough um, 
Yes, I, I did wonder whether um, your memory might come up again. <laughs> mm. Well, it, it didn't. That's the problem. <laughs> yes, but, that's the problem. <laughs> yes. Uh, right. Uh, I guess we should begin then. Yes. Yes, we should no, begin. I'm, I'm just waiting for your assent. This, this is not a dictatorship, Scott. <laughs> you have my permission to begin. We're in a post-Franco democracy, this podcast. God damn you, Begbie. You made so much <laughs> trouble for everyone. We are the fuds with the podcast and we're game for a swedge. <laughs> we could have begun, of course, with Almodovar's first feature-length film, the provocatively titled... Apologies for any Spanish speakers, but for the sake of keeping this with a clean tag for English language iTunes, that would be Frack, Frack, Frack Meet Him. But, well, yeah, we didn't start with that one. Instead, we've opted for another film, also starring the director's frequent collaborator, Carmen Maurer. 1988's Mujeres al Borde de un Ataque de Nervios, or Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown which seems to be broadly regarded as a good entry point into Almodovar's work. Maura plays Pepa, a soap opera actress and voiceover artist whose boyfriend and co-worker Iban, Fernando Guillén, has just left her. That very same day, Pepa has an appointment with a doctor that confirms that it isn't just her that Iban is leaving, and she desperately tries to find him so that they can talk. This leads her, after making a batch of either homicidal or suicidal gazpacho, use yet to be decided, to meet Ivan's ex-wife, Lucia, Julieta Serrano, and learn how his hitherto unbeknownst to her son, Carlos, Antonio Banderas. After unsuccessfully staking out Lucia's flat all night in the hope of meeting with Ivan, Pepe returns home to find multiple answer machine messages, though all from her model friend, Candela, Maria Barranco, and not from Ivan. Candela is hiding from the police because, well, because she's been sleeping with a Shiite terrorist who has just committed an act of terrorism in Madrid and she thinks the police might consider her an accomplice. And, well, like her name, Candela isn't the brightest thing in existence. Complicating things even further is the unexpected arrival of Carlos and his fiancée Marisa, Rosé de Palma, who've come to view Paper's flat to sublet it. Paper must comfort her scared and suicidal friend, come to terms with Ivan's adult son, discover which woman Ivan isn't going on his trip with and which one he is, handle the murderous and psychotic jilted lover seemingly dropped in from the 1960s, and find out why Ivan left her. Oh, um, let's not forget the drugged soup, or the police. Women on the Verge is indeed a fine entry point into the world of Almodovar, being as it is a farcical screwball comedy with black humour and a strong undercurrent of melancholy and sadness, played by a fantastic female ensemble cast, thereby presenting almost a microcosm of his work as a whole, or at least a pretty good slice through it. It is, to boot, also a thoroughly entertaining and very funny film on its own, and I think it's reasonable to argue that if you don't find something within it that clicks with you, then Almodovar may just not be for you. And for that, you will not have my condemnation, only my pity. <laughs> what say you to this film, Scott? Yeah, um, one of the ones I've not seen, I uh, watched this about a week ago, and I, I've got to be honest, not an awful lot of it is sticking out in my memory. I did, however, like it well enough while I was watching it. I think there's been a number of his darkly comic works uh, that we'll talk about here, and this may be the most successful of them for me because it has some sort of character motivations that make sense. None of them are particularly deeply delved into. This is, is an awful lot like a 
it's got a touch of the sitcom about it, but but it, it manages to be funny enough that I think it, it gets away with a lot of it. It's got an awful lot, as you say, of the what we want to be the kind of a mode of our staples. I mean, it's, it's really well produced, and uh, I can't remember. But this is like his what sixth film or something. It's, it's fairly. It's fairly something done like that. He'd done. It's his fifth film, I think, with Carmen Maurer, who was in most of his stuff. Yes, I should probably have checked exactly what the number was, but it's... But it's, it's, it's amazing. Like so he's got a lot of his things, because I guess when I watched it in the first instance, I wasn't quite sure where it came, and I thought, oh, he's come out the gate strong, but no, he had been doing quite a few, so a lot of the things that you'd see in this film, you'll see going forward, things like the way he's never met a saturation dial, he's not cranked to 11. <laughs> lots of yeah. very strong use of colour, uh, bold colour, lots of uh, great lots of ensemble performances, and uh, it's a, as you say, it's a very good little capsule of... Almodovar's work, so uh, yeah, I, I agree with your sentiment there. If you if you can't find anything to like in this one, then you probably won't have a lot of joy uh, with his later works, which have been uh, either spin-offs or refinements and various elements or strands you can see that have been woven into this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's of in and of itself, it's merely, I think, good. But that's certainly that's by no, by no means a, a, a bad thing. Um, it is uh, a quite enjoyable uh, little romp. It is. Obviously not something you should be taking all that seriously. Um, the narrative is, uh, is a very screwball comedy, a lot of coincidence going on there, uh, but I think it gets away with it. It's, it's good-natured enough, despite what it's actually doing in a lot of it, that it manages to kind of uh, uh, not to be too annoying in that regard. Coincidence is a good word. I have that noted down as well, and it's actually uh, it's something of a theme through a lot of his films that yeah. um, there is coincidence, but it's but it's not more. It's not so much in a pulling something out of your bum sort of way or just like a, an uncommon, an unlikely solution to something. It's yeah. more just like, I guess in the way that some stories might have to get more like as a destiny sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm fine with that. But it's it's noticeable that it is in quite a few of his films. This I think I must have liked a fair bit more than you. I just, I find it really funny and even the dark stuff. I think what really marks out a lot of Almodovar's work and it's why I like it so much, I think, is that there's a genuine warmth, both in just, even in like darker stuff, there's real warmth, not just in terms of the the way the film's made, but just in terms of like actually caring about the characters, even if they're not like a particularly big character in any given thing. Mm-hmm. So you have to care about these characters, and that just comes across to me. And this is, yeah, the, the setup for it is, apart from being coincidence based, is quite farcical and farce is a tricky tricky thing to get right unfortunately Almodovar does manage it because you know some farce can be like for instance Faulty Towers particularly something like the Kipper in the Corpse episode uh, and because it's Faulty Towers it's therefore awesome or on the other hand it could be Death at a Funeral mm. you know one of the worst things ever committed to cinema and for some reason remade with Martin Lawrence so that's presumably worse <laughs> <laughs> and I just I just really but there's there's all just slightly absurd touches, but that also really pay off well to this film has this great running gag with this bleached blonde taxi driver yeah. who has all these things for sale in his, his taxi. And then at one point, Carmen Maurer, because she keeps ending up in his taxi, and she's like, oh, I really need eye drops because her eyes are running with tears. And then, oh, I'm an idiot. I should have had eye drops. I've got everything else, like tissues, and I've got food and magazines and stuff then at the end that pays off yeah i really like that it's 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 actually just it's not just a running gag it actually pays off in some way as well that's great um and there are some of these films that have a have like a wee bit that almost doesn't seem like it belongs in the film 
it will be associated with it in some way, but it almost feels like another thing. There's something of that sort in Women on the Verge of an Error Spectrum, which is Karen Mirra's character, Pepa, is she turns on the TV and there's an advert on the TV that her character has created. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really quite absurd, but it just it amused me so much. It's about, it's an advert for washing powder. And the entire advert is based on the fact that it's really, really good for um, getting blood stains out because she's covering up for her murder, murdering son. <laughs> Like, that's I guess nothing to do with anything, but it just really amused me. That sort of kind of quite dark humour there, slightly absurd, but quite dark as well. And I really like that. Yeah. Also, best evenings ever. <laughs> Mockapot evenings, they're great. <laughs> Pity I could never pull them off. That's a problem because I don't want to bear now. <laughs> also, deserves some award for making Antonio Banderas look like he's an extra from Friends or something. He's a, a very unique look. Um, yeah. Um, it's, not, not, not a strong one, <laughs> I think, for him. No, it's weird. Um, there's a quite a... Well, it's not a surprise, man. Spain's film industry isn't massive because it's not a massive country. Hmm. Although I have a feeling it might be more vibrant there. So maybe because of the language that it's um, less oppressed by the other huge English language movie-making area that happens to be, like, yeah. um, quite strong in the United States, weirdly. And, but yeah, so there's... It's not surprising to see that some of the few Spanish um, actors that have become international stars have been in Almodovar's films. So we've got Benelope Cruz and Javier Bardem in particular, those two. But it's only really Antonio Banderas that got his start in yeah. Almodovar films. And... This is not his best role. I think we'll come to that very shortly. But it's, uh, it's like, it does look, he's so very 90s. It does just, it's actually slightly just before that, but it feels very early 90s, doesn't it? He does, he is dressed like Chandler from Friends. That's, yeah, yeah that, that's spot on. That's just, God, I didn't think about that. He looks so weird and so young, too. Yeah. Well, we perhaps go to another film next, Scott. Would that be a thing we could do? Yes, if that, you have nothing more to say? That would make sense, yes. Yes, okay then, Atomy. Let's do that. Or not, don't actually do that, I'm not asking that. Um, I'm saying that's the film, please don't yes. tie me up. <laughs> yes, tie me up, tie me down, as it would be Englishly released. Uh, Meet Ricky, played by returning Antonio Banderas, a young man erroneously released from a mental institution. I say erroneously, as his only desire on release is to track down a porn actress he'd had a fling with on a previous escape and coerce her into loving him. He widely kept that one from the shrinks. <laughs> Said porn star Victoria Abril's Marina Osorio is trying to go straight, working on a trashy but legit horror film and mostly kicking her drug habit. Helped by her sister, Lola's Leon's Lola, try saying that three times quickly, uh, the film's assistant director. Uh, in short order, Ricky achieves his goal, Atomying Maria, uh, Marina in her holidaying neighbour's apartment, plans to make her love him are complicated by, well, apart from it being mental, Marina developing a chronic toothache that, thanks to her previous abuse, ibuprofen's not making much of a dent in. So Ricky must try to find suitable pain relief, which, a tense trip to the doctors aside, will leave him turning to the black market and uncovering one weird trick to allow Stockholm Syndrome to kick in. Meanwhile, Lola has noticed her sister's disappearance and is worried, but it seems to be the sort of event that has some precedent. However, she's also promised Marina's neighbour that she'll water his plants, so it seems that there's an inevitable horticultural clock on the discovery of Ricky's scheme. However, it's perhaps the 
events after the plans rumbled that's the most remarkable thing about this film. And I suppose a spoiler warning klaxon is required here. Uh, but Ricky's plans has worked, it seems. And the three end the film living weirdly ever after. Uh, according to the internet's ultimate arbiter of truth, Wikipedia, this <laughs> mashup of horror and romance is built as a dark romantic comedy, which is very on brand for Almodovar. However, I find it difficult to find a great deal of romance in this, at least as far as the central strand of the narrative goes, or much to find funny either. Dark. Yes, I can concede that, I think. There's enough amusing oddness going on in the periphery to prevent my attention wandering too far with this film, but I have to admit I cannot fathom the mental states of the agonists, both Ant and Prot, and that's a huge roadblock for me with this film. Uh, By the end of it, it all just seemed a bit stupid and a waste of any investment I had in the characters. Now, on a technical level, and I suspect we should just take this as table stakes for a load of our films (laughs) now on, otherwise we'll repeat it constantly, it's very well acted and it's a very good-looking piece of filmmaking. However, the characters and the narrative really just don't tie together the way they need to and so while I don't regret watching this I actually can't recommend anyone else do so I'm not sure to necessarily dissuade people from watching it but this, I found this absolutely and by a margin the least satisfying of the films that we um, are watching for this mm. I had somehow skipped over this before I think it's the only one we've covered today that I hadn't seen at least once mm-hmm. and which maybe just well, because I'm not convinced it would have stood up to much um, repeat viewing. The problem is that I have the same problem. You mentioned Stockholm Syndrome. That's it's sort of what it is. It's, it's kind of the Beauty and the Beast tale. Yes. Yeah. Like somehow, basically, if someone's kept captive long enough, they will fall in love. I'm like, eh. it, it bothered me in Beauty and the Beast um, and every um, film or story that has had the same archetype as that. And it bothers me here. Yeah. I also got she, uh, Victoria Abril's character, almost turns on a dime. It's not yeah. even like it's a gradual thing. And that frustrated me because up until that point, I was really quite enjoying it. Just as a, like a really good thriller. And Antonio Banderas is sinister. I don't think I've ever seen quite that um, thing from before. It's... Because, you know, he's, he's ready to fly off the handle. He pretends that he loves and is caring for but, like, in a second he will be punching her in the face or tying her up or something. And he's genuinely quite frightening in this. Mm. Um, and it's absolutely a world away from um, how he was in uh, Women on the Verge of an Errors Breakdown. He's just yeah. kind of this mousy, shy guy. And I think it's a really, really good performance from him. And then it got to that point, and I'm oh, no, please, please don't go where I think you're going. And mm-hmm. I, I, kept, I held out hope for maybe 10 or 15 minutes more. And like, okay, she's realised that this is how she gets out of here. She pretends. And that would have been a such a, 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 such a much more interesting film. Yeah. If that she had, in fact, pretended to fall in love with them. And then that, that was her way to get out. Yeah. Um, oh. I wondered if it was hinting at that in like the last scene where they're in the car singing and she starts crying and I thought, is that a nod to that? But if it is, you're leaving it a bit late. Um. Yes. Again, I had a similar thought too. It's like when it gets to the end, like, yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's like almost like she's having second thoughts, although somehow her sister's right on board now. Like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the big problem, I guess, yeah, great acting, it looks lovely. And it's just, the, the big problem is that like, so about two thirds of the way through, you're basically expected to buy a completely unbelievable character switch. Yeah, and it, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. I don't like it. It's, so for me, this film is one more frustration than anything else because 
I had enjoyed it so much up to that point. Good thriller in there, worth a lot of the director's work. There are hints, there are well, hints, bits of humour, um, not always dark, but often. Which is some genuinely funny stuff in here, and then some slightly odd stuff too, like this really expensive penthouse apartment that our neighbour has that they're in is also full of He-Man toys for some reason. <laughs> okay. I've not seen Hordrak in a long time and I did not expect it here. <laughs> and then, yeah, so there are bits of humour and bits of quite slightly odd, quirky character things and then it comes to the hands, yeah, I just don't buy that. And, and the whole film hinges on that and, yeah, disappointed me in the end. I still think there's enough in there to enjoy and it's not a long film. But I certainly would put it fairly low down my list of anything I was going to catch up on if I hadn't seen them before. Yeah, yeah. I guess I wasn't enjoying it quite as much as you before the the turn. It was the same point uh, in the narrative where I yeah, just yeah. kind of went. Nah, nah, I, I, I now no longer understand what is going on with this film in terms of any of the characters. Well, <laughs> the main characters in it. So uh, yeah, it, it lost me that that point, but it didn't have all that strong grip in me before then. But yeah, it's got the usual a lot of our yeah, good performances, technically very sound, very polished film. So uh, yeah, probably probably agree. Um, stick it down the lowest order of uh, catching up in, but uh, maybe not one to to go on heavy on first first viewing. But uh, yeah, it's it's not dreadful, but uh, yeah, it seemed it's just too strange uh, a film at the end of the day to to really kind of to really land with me. I don't think it's strange, but it's just that when you simply do not buy an action being taken by a character and the whole film hinges on that, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We move on? Move on to 1997's uh, Live Flesh. Yes, uh, um, as you've uh, probably been able to count for yourself, we're jumping forward almost a decade now. And moving from a sort of romantic sort of comedy with thriller elements to a pure thriller. 1987's, as Scott says, Carne Tremula, or Live Flesh, is based on Ruth Rendell's 1986 gold dagger winning psychological thriller, Live Flesh. And begins in a Madrid of 1970 amidst a freedom curtailing state of emergency. On board a bus in empty streets, young prostitute Isabel, Penelope Cruz, gives birth. She and her infant son, Victor, briefly benefit from the mayor and municipal transport director vying for publicity and perceived munificence, and mother and son are awarded free lifetime travel aboard the city's buses, promising Victor a life on wheels and foreshadowing a gift that he will in fact bestow on someone else. Twenty years later we meet Victor again, now played by Liberto Rabal, now an angry and impetuous young man who is furious that the woman he had agreed to meet after quickie sex in a club toilet the week before has forgotten all about their date, and indeed him. The woman, Elena, Francesco Neri, is a junkie, only interested in getting her next fix, and Victor is able to gain access to her flat when he rings her bell and she thinks that he is her dealer. An already tense situation is complicated when Elena produces a gun, and after a shot is fired, police officer Sancho, Jose Sancho and David Javier Bardem arrive on the scene. Victor holds the gun on Elena and during a fracas David is shot, relegating him to a wheelchair. A few years later and David, now a star wheelchair basketball player, is married to Elena who is clean and spending her considerable inheritance on children's charities. A resentful Victor who blames David for his life and his ills has just been released from prison 
and he intends to use the small sum left to him by his mother to pursue and seduce Elena and ruin her and David's life. His plans are complicated by his unexpected relationship with Clara, Angela Molina, the wife of David's former partner Sancho, and revelations of unrealised truths behind the events of the night of David's fateful shooting. Satisfying and successful as a taut and engaging revenge thriller, Live Flesh contains themes of love, loyalty, desire and obsession, and also explores sexuality and crippled masculinity, and in a refreshingly unsentimental way. It also presents as an allegory for late 1990s Spain still suffering from and dealing with the repression, oppression and violence of the Franco era, and the long recovery period in Deity Hila Nation. Most appealingly, it does all of this with some fantastic performances, most notably Javier Bardem and Italian Francesca Neri, and a raw, angry turn from Verbal as the older Victor. Not to mention the affecting, vulnerable and desperate portrayal of Clara by Angela Molina. And despite its contents, the film ends on a defiant and defiantly upbeat note, both for its characters and its country. So, quite like this one then, maybe guessed. Yeah, um, I wasn't all that impressed with Live Flesh either. Another first viewing <laughs> for me, and to be honest, you could take pretty much everything that I just said uh, <laughs> about the last film and apply it more or less directly to this. Uh, there's a point towards the end where... Uh, various allegiances to switch and I don't think it did enough to justify any of that at which point it's like ah well you're, you're all free to leave, be left to your own devices and, and see where you get to but I stopped caring about it at that point uh, but that's fairly late in the game and the rest of it uh, I can more or less get on board with particularly the performances lots of really great performances uh, and it's Perhaps a little bit, but a little bit of filler going on early, earlier doors. I'm not quite sure they really needed all that prologue with the uh, Victor's birth. That, like, no, that's, that, that, that's, it's an awful long way to go for a pretty strained allegory. If you're that one. Yeah, uh, that, that, I get what you mean. That's, uh, it does seem to be there simply to service the the bookend to the films because it's got the posing. Mm. view but with more people on the other end and it has as like the allegory but yeah it doesn't really seem to serve the story much that's certainly true yeah and there's a couple of there's at least one scene of uh, david practicing his wheelchair basketball that goes on for like two minutes and is is it i don't it's, <laughs> it, it served no purpose and it didn't seem other than just making the film longer i don't know what the point of it was because it's not like there's one point where he's playing his game and, he, and and you know he's he's losing his temper because that's part of his kind of the way that all this is affecting him and it makes sense to have that bit in there but the other bit is just him and the guys training it's like two minutes of them training uh, i guess they just had the footage and wanted to show him was that a condition of uh, getting the basketball team in i don't know but that was I found that particularly strange. It all sticks out, sticks out in a in my mind for a filmmaker that normally has. You could normally at least get a pretty good idea of why any scenes in there, even if it's uh-huh. not actually. If it's not actually anything to do with the char- the narrative, it's at least driving some of the characterization forward. But this was just there, and it's one of the only scenes I can think of in all the films we'll talk about. That just I could not understand why you've put that in there at all. It makes no odds. Um, but yeah, the rest of it, uh, yeah, very strong performances. Having Bardem's really good in it, and I was a little bit less impressed uh, with Victor, uh, his actors. <laughs> I didn't quite get the, the level of menace that I think it's trying to get uh, from him at some point um, I know it's trying to do a bit of a rope-a-dope towards the end and um, move your perceptions of him but I don't think he does an awful lot to p- 
pull me one way or the other with him. I thought he was a bit bland. And that that's perhaps the one thing that does stop me getting into the film. Um, the main antagonist, at least as it's presented for most of it, is just not all that interesting to me. So I kind of didn't care for a lot of it. I, I, I see what you mean. I didn't ever really consider him a threat, but I did buy his anger and his sort of kind of almost rebel without a cause sort of things like raging against everything but not really knowing why hmm. I guess that's a bit more evident before he goes to prison though but in terms of I just thought he was quite angry um, so I bought that uh, but I did films like Finding Menace as opposed to his, for instance Antonio Banderas in the last film hmm. whereas even without trying Javier Bardem is just full of menace even when it's not necessarily yeah. <laughs> uh, meant there for the character so I think Javier Bardem is great yeah, I, I don't necessarily disagree with much of what you said, Scott. It's just apparently, I, I, again, I liked it more. The the one thing is, and I, it was a a bit of a sticking point for me was the bit that you mentioned where like there was a change, like the sort of pivotal moment mm-hmm. of a betrayal. Whereas in Time Me Up, Time Me Down, it just really it didn't make any sense. Here, I, I certainly can see why you'd say the same. I just thought it, at least they had built up to that a bit. Yeah, because without like sort of bad stuff happening, so that was less of an issue for me, and I can sort of picture the the basketball training session, but I don't really re- remember being particularly conscious of it. So apparently, it didn't bother <laughs> me at all. Yeah, it just stuck out like a sore thumb for me. Um, interesting that we put this uh, film right next to Time Me Up, Time Me Down because I think we could very well have done a compare and contrast because there's lots of really quite similar themes going towards it and actually there's a way you could phrase the narrative where it's actually the, pretty much the same yeah, uh, well, between both it, it does sort of involve like, trying to force someone to love them yeah, um, for different reasons in this case, but there, there are similarities actually, yeah. um, which is just by coincidence the way we've um, mm-hmm. put these together in the particular films have selected, but yeah it's definitely a much much more successful film than Time Me Up, Time Me Down too. Yeah, I think I could agree on that one at least, yes. Yeah, uh, it's it works. The characters make more sense in this. Although it's also getting notable for... It's probably... There's a couple of films I've still not seen, but I think it's... You could probably say this is Almodovar's straightest film. There's not... It still feels like an Almodovar film, but there isn't a lot of the... So there's not an awful lot of colour for the most part in this. It's quite muted compared to his other films. Mm. And it's not got... I mean, there are moments of of humour, but it doesn't have the the amount of humour you typically expect from his films. It is a lot more just kind of straight noirish yeah, yeah. Um, film. I mean, noirish with a bit of a Almodovar flair to it, but not a lot. Not, not as much as other films of his... Like just scream Almodovar. Yeah, yeah. I've not actually looked at how many films he produces. I mean, he's obviously his own production company. I don't. How much of it does he write himself? Because this is an adaptation of someone else's work, right? Um, yeah, but apparently but, quite loose from what I've read. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's, I think it's it's rare for him to do adaptations at all because yeah. he writes almost everything himself. Yeah, um, I believe his uh, production company El Deseo makes all these films now and I think he writes pretty much everything himself him and his brother write a lot of them too Agustin Almodovar who's also yeah. the producer of a lot of these films yeah I don't know it's the answer that's largely because I've forgotten the question <laughs> <laughs> 
looking at how many of these he writes, I think he's written almost everything himself. Uh, yeah, that was that was what I I was going to say that because that's what my memory tells me. But my memory's not the most reliable at the best of times, <laughs> so um, I wanted to check. But uh, yeah, because um, there's been a few instances in the past of directors when you know, like when the Coen brothers more often than not are writing their own stuff, and when yeah, you do yeah. produce someone else's, it tends not to work quite so well. Especially uh, if it's the Lady Killers, which is just abysmal. Unfortunately, <laughs> yes. this is not the case here. But yeah. Uh, the the Coen Brothers was who I was thinking of very much actually too there, because the film is so much uh, their films are typically so much in their voice. Yes, I don't feel that Almodovar's films are in his voice, but they're very much in his style. Yeah, then yeah, it's, it's but it's still. I was going to say it's a really good adaptation. I don't know. I've not read the book. That's a stupid thing to say. <laughs> it's uh, certainly an adaptation. <laughs> it's an adaptation, but uh, yeah, I do feel it is. It is given his own spin. But yes, it, it's. Certainly, the only film we're covering today, I believe, that is not um, written by himself. Right. That's all we're Yeah. So his brother does the production; he doesn't do the writing at all. So I was being silly. You ignore that. Ignore that bit I said. But yes, that all the rest of them are written by him and Tim alone. In fact, he's uh, this is the only other film that's got another writing credit on it. It's been having been co-written by him, Ray Loriga, and. Oh Christ! Let me try this. Uh, Jorge Guerrero That's some surname. Crikey. <laughs> yeah, and the rest are, are him alone. So it's very much his vision for films that are brilliant. Because it really is. He is an auteur, and there aren't certainly not that are hugely popular. There aren't that many of them around nowadays. No. Uh, yeah. So shall we continue to move forward in time, Scott? Yes, that's how it works. Let's move forward then to 1999's Todo Sobre Mi Madre, all about my mother. Yes, uh, in which Eloy Azorin's Esteban wants to be a writer. Well, unfortunately for him, his destiny lies under the tyres of a passing motor vehicle as he chases after a car to get an autograph. Them's the brakes, his neck at this instance. His heartbroken mother, Cecilia Roth's Manuela, quits her job and moves back to Barcelona, where she hopes to find her son's father, in time revealed, and very minor spoiler klaxon, uh, to be Tony Canto's Lola, now living as a transvestite and unaware of Esteban's existence. Uh, Side note, I am not 100% up to speed on exactly how gender identity and terminology has progressed since this film was made and I'm also rather taking various summaries at their, wor- uh, their word when transvestites used rather than transsexual and I don't think it's ever mentioned explicitly enough to say one way or the other what the intent of the film is and so far it's not an area of Spanish language that the duolingual has thought to teach me <laughs> uh, so apologies if this is tripping anyone's wokeness alarms, I'm just working with what I've got here also I can't really get anywhere in this film without spoiling the hell out of it so uh, yeah, be warned while trying to track Lola down, Manuela meets and over time becomes friends with a young nun, Penelope Cruz's Rosa, who was about to take a dangerous missionary position, but it turns out that a very different dangerous missionary position has left her pregnant and HIV positive. Already having a strange relationship with her parents, Rosa moves in with Manuela, who cares for her. This will mean giving up her job as personal assistant to Marisa Paradise's Humarojo, uh, the actress her son ill-advisedly ran into traffic for, and by extension, Huma's drug-addicted co-star and lover, Candela Pena's Nina Cruz, a job Manuela essentially accidentally stumbled into. In time, this job will pass to an old friend, transsexual prostitute, Antonio San Juan's Agrado, who's as close to a comic relief character as the film has. 
And so it goes in a film that starts with traumatic events and leads up to more traumatic events and revelations, giving poor Manuela little respite. Indeed, this is a f- this film has a narrative that would give telenovela writers a pause. It's a <laughs> jumble of exceedingly remote possibilities and coincidences used to puppeteer these poor characters' emotions, heartstrings and events for our entertainment. It's a clear testament to all involved talents that it does not feel like a contrived bundle of melodrama, <laughs> despite, arguably, that being all that it is. Certainly if we're going to isolate the narrative from the character for some reason you weirdo <laughs> it's important uh, to recognise Cecilia Roth's performance as exemplary as it's her around this film orbits exclusively uh, the satisfaction of this film comes from Manuela's efforts to deal with the traumas the film throws at her and that's why her characterisation is centre stage to the point that the film gives us flourishes that would flunk out of boilerplate screenwriting mills there's plenty of scenes as I kind of mentioned earlier uh, scenes and character interactions that are wildly unnecessary to actually driving the narrative forward but really absolutely critical for character building and that's really what makes this film uh, so successful. I found a passing mention to me not liking this film greatly in a, what, 15 year old review of Bad Education. In truth, I now can't remember a damn thing of what I thought about it first time <laughs> round, or about Bad Education for that matter, uh, the first time of first viewing uh, so perhaps it's just a change in my tastes or more familiarity with a load of our rhythms, uh, but I certainly like this an awful lot more now. We'll go on to discuss one film in this podcast that I think edges this out as his finest there are for me in yeah, those films I, I, I've seen. I suspect we're on the same page there then, Scott. Mm. Um, but we'll see. Sorry, please yeah, carry on. No, literally only four words. Uh, it's pretty damn close. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If, if you... Anyone who's making a case for this to be their favourite petrol mode of our film, I would certainly most heartily respect that position. This is just an incredibly, uh, incredibly rewarding uh, film to watch. And yes... Again, usual table stakes are there. Um, looks great and all that stuff, but in particular this time round, the performances really are absolutely spectacular and uh, really make this quite a, a very rewarding film to watch indeed. Yeah, I, I adore this film. I didn't remember that you didn't like it, but I did remember that you'd written the review for Bad Education back in the one-liner days, which is what I went back and read and why I knew <laughs> that there were a couple of films that you didn't like which is yes. what I mentioned in the introduction. And yes. this was one me, of them. That was news to me too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was I was really, really hoping that you'd appreciate this more um, on another viewing. Um, mm-hmm. Or another first viewing, maybe. Yes. Us. Uh, because I, I just think this is a, a truly wonderful film. Again, with a lot of Almodovar's films, there are, as we've mentioned, ridiculous coincidences and in some ways some ridiculously far-fetched things mm-hmm. uh, but they just they work so well for character yeah uh, often for humor as well as drama too uh, but they're just they make the cards so good it's, there's just so much joy to be had from being with the characters in this film mm-hmm. cecilia wrote uh is is amazing i am also in love with her voice uh, <laughs> it's just it's kind of quite i don't know it's irrelevant i just i really like her voice but i just made it much more appealing to watch and it's just uh, there's nothing about this film i think i don't like it's also quite nice to see almodovar move out of madrid uh, this film set in barcelona well apart from the very beginning so it's just nice to see i'm doing going somewhere else in spain it would have changed whether the film is good or not but it's just uh, it makes it visually a little different I don't know what to say, Scott, other than just this is amazing. I love this film. Every character in it is great. With the possible exception of Tony Canto, who plays Lola, because he's a very minor character in the film. 
Yes, despite um, being sort of, despite be he's almost a MacGuffin rather than a character. Yeah, um, yeah that, that's quite fair to say. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's really important. He's affecting everybody's lives while not being there. Yeah, so he's, he's a presence throughout the film, but he's not a character. Yeah. Uh, so when that character does appear, doesn't have, um, doesn't have much opportunity to do anything, which is the mm-hmm. uh, the problem. Whereas yeah, Antonia San Juan as Agrado. She's fantastic. She's largely the comic relief for the film. Yeah. But there's still a real tenderness to the card and the the friendship and relationship between her and uh, Cecilia Roth's character are just is so believable. Yeah. It feels so genuine and real. And uh, I kinda like too there's there's a big theme in Almodovar's films about it's not just about homosexuality and like, the whole LGBTQ spectrum. There's just a frankness about sexuality. You find a lot in European cinema that, certainly not in the United States, and unfortunately to a similar degree here, is like, it's verboten, you know. Mm. We can kill all the people like, murder, 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 shooty, 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 bang, bang. But sex, no, no sex, please. We are British and um, sex is rubbish or something. And it's, <laughs> it's something I don't understand. It's something that is constant mystery to me because of how much it affects ratings and Almodovar's films in particular I think Gly Flesh um, was part of his, um, I don't know, maybe actually maybe Atomy was like a, a big fight to get non-adult rated certificates for mm-hmm. um, because apparently people just can't think about sex it's just been like natural and pleasant and you know, good Whereas <laughs> killing people is okay, and I know I've said this on well, several episodes of this podcast, so it continues to baffle me, you know. But even by those standards, Almodovar is quite brazen about um, sexuality, it's quite uh, transgressive in many ways. Yeah, but I kind of like that, I just find it refreshing. About a lot of it is about things that are not of interest to me, but they're certainly of interest mm-hmm. to plenty of people, and I just like the, the frankness with which it's discussed. And I just find that really refreshing. So this is films another example of that. But at the same time, there's other just regular character beats that you find in the best character stuff all over the world. And, and just film just has all of them. <laughs> I, I just honestly, there is only one film of his that I like more. I suspect it's the same one that you like more that you mentioned. And it is, it's, um, we're talking cigarette papers between them probably. Mm. And there's just, I don't know, there's just nothing about this film I don't like. I, I, everybody's so good. I mean, you got Marisa Paredes as Uma Rojo. Red Smoke, that's a hell of a stage name. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I just, uh, 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 I'm sort of wittering now. I just, <laughs> most like, I, don't, I don't have anything to add to what you said. Uh, it's just, it's such a great character piece. Um, absolutely anchored by Cecilia Roth. And why is it so much harder to talk about things I love than things I hate? I could, if it's a film I didn't like, I could just cut it to pieces. Uh, yeah. This I'm just like, like I'm repeating in um, terrible, terrible sentence fragments. It's awfully good. <laughs> it's just so, so well written, so well observed. And the, the strength of Almodovar's best stuff is that the people feel real. Even if maybe they're slightly exaggerated and certainly they're not necessarily in particularly believable situations. Yeah. But they really feel like real people. Yeah, I don't and think the, it's a filmmaker that ever lacked confidence, but I think <laughs> no. th- this is certainly one where it shows how well placed that confidence is. Because 
there's not many tweaks you would need to make for this film to be an absolute disaster. Um, if if this wasn't quite so well acted, if these you weren't quite so forgiving of the amount of contrivances that the film has, it could be laughable for entirely the wrong reasons. Um, it's easy to imagine this being made by a, a less competent production crew uh-huh. and it being awful without really tweaking a great deal of it. So it's a credit and a testament to how well he can put all this together that it works as well as it does. Yeah, yeah. he just seems to... And he is, and I'll mention this again later on, he is very much regarded as a women's director, which suggests that he's not good with men, and he is. Uh, he still gets fantastic performances out of his male leads too, but he just, I don't know, seems to... Uh, again, it's it's the, it's the word I used before. It's warmth. Austria's these characters with such warmth, even when they're not necessarily good characters. I, I mean, yeah. good as in like morally, not like in terms of how they're written. And he just seems to get such good performances and such natural, warm performances out of his cast, particularly female ensembles, and particularly, particularly in this case. Yeah. I think it's just because, as a writer, he appears to be someone that's actually spoken to women. <laughs> a lot of a lot of films that I see, I, the portrayal of women suggests that it's written by someone who doesn't know what a woman is. <laughs> and this is someone who's just treating them as, oh, look, it turns out they're just human beings <laughs> and with the same tribes as everyone else. They're not some weird foreign species, that, particularly in action cinema, you know, because women might as well not exist in action cinema for what, for what it is. There's lots of really weird things going on about women because most of them seem to be written by weird shuttons. Um, yeah, and, and if there are women, they're, they're, they're basically men with breasts. <laughs> yes. Um, so this seems to have a better understanding of what women are simply by talking to them like of which that most human <laughs> beings would do. But apparently that's just not the sort of thing that's common among screenwriters these days. So, yeah, fair play to him for that. <laughs> Indeed. Speaking of talking to women. Ooh, nice linking device, Scott. Ooh, back of the net. <laughs> During a dance recital in a theatre, a man is moved to tears. This expression of emotion makes an impact on the stranger seated next to him, something that will linger in the stranger's memory until they meet in the most uncommon of circumstances a few months later. The crying man is Marco Davio Grandinetti, an Argentinian travel writer. His attempts to write a profile for the newspaper El País of Lidia González, Rosario Flores, the most famous female matador in Spain, end in failure for the article, but an unexpected success romantically. However, when Lydia is severely gored by a bull half a year later, Marco finds himself alone again, sitting watch over her comatose body in a Madrid clinic. Here he encounters Benigno, Javier Camara, a nurse charged with caring for another young woman in a coma, the former ballet student Alethea, Leonor Wadling. Benigno was the man sitting next to Marco at the recital, although Marco was unaware of him at the time. Marco confesses himself unsure of what to do about Lydia, but Benigno advises him simply to talk to her. Boom, title dropper, whatever Scott's <laughs> been saying of late. Uh, as the two men spend their time at the clinic, they form a friendship, talking of travel and design, the joy and beauty of art, of women, of caring, of obsession. A revelation about Lydia causes Marco to leave and continue his work as a travel writer. And when he returns to Spain many months later, further shocking revelations await him. Alethea has been raped while comatose and is now pregnant, and her most devoted carer, Benigno, is the main suspect. 
and it is in prison that Marco re-encounters him. While the abhorrent act at the heart of the film's third act cannot be forgiven, it can perhaps be explained, and at the very least it can prompt questions and even an understanding of the often hard-to-understand attitudes and behaviours of the friends and families of those accused of or convicted of such heinous acts. And it's that that probably forms the heart of this film. Almodovar is, of course, an auteur, but Talk to Her is one of the films where this is most keenly observed. He draws strong performances as per usual from his stars, but it's his script and composition that have the most profound impacts in this work. Able Conea, Talk to Her, is calmer and less showy than many of Almodovar's other works, but retains many of his signature traits, including theatricality and questions of identity and sexuality. As usual, he treats his subjects with compassion and warmth, and while perhaps he gives his characters enough rope with which to hang themselves, refuses to be their judge or executioner. That's a nifty trick to even attempt, let alone pull off, in a film that deals with the subject matters that talk to her does. Here he questions gender roles, and in particular the idea that nursing of others, the act, not the job, but that too, tears and emotion, even devotion are feminine things. Music and eroticism have their place too, including a largely dialogue-free sequence in which Brazilian musician Catano Veloso sings in a desert night, and a charged, lingering, sensual scene in which Lydia dons her matador garb, warrior-like, a ceremony that echoes priests dressing before mass that has been seen in other Almodovar works. There's even a seven-minute classic silent film included, well, I say classic, uh, Fake, obviously, uh, featuring Path Vega, that may feel to some like it doesn't belong, but it is pure Almodovar, and that serves the purpose of potentially explaining how Benigno, if he is guilty, views his crime. Apparently I didn't finish preparing for this one because it just ends there, and I don't know what to say now, so, <laughs> so take it away, please. <laughs> yeah, um... Talk to her. I was a bit disappointed with because it's a film full of weird people doing weird things, and <laughs> not a lot of it connected with me. And it got off on a long foot by having one of the well characters I'm supposed to hear about the plight of being a bullfighter. So I was I'm more of a bone the bulls. Um, yeah, I, and I had that feeling too, actually. <laughs> yes, I was like, uh, yeah, not not so on board with the whole bullfighting thing. <laughs> so it kind of started off on the back foot, more or less, and it never really recovered. I mean, I can appreciate that it's very well made and very well acted, and I can, on some level, appreciate the script, but none of it really hung together all that well for me. It's got lots of really great act- performances as you come to expect by this point I'm getting almost tired of saying it but <laughs> all that damn goodness bugger yeah, yeah but uh, it, it didn't seem to be in service of anything I didn't really get any exploration of these themes that you're, you're talking about there I didn't feel I got any particular understanding about anyone's motivation as this goes on um, it was just a bunch of stuff that happened and got to the end and it's like I don't really understand why anyone's doing all of this maybe I went back and, and read it a bit more closely um Perhaps on a second viewing, some of that might be more apparent. But on the first run through, it's just like, eh, I, I don't really like any of these characters, and I don't like most of the things that they're doing, or saying, or thinking, apparently. So, yeah, it kind of bounced off me, I'm afraid. Again, can't deny the technical competence of it, but you know, not a film that really did much to impress me, I'm afraid. Well, that's a pity, yes. I just find it really interesting. I mean, it seems like... If there's any judgement in this film, it's that there's something a bit odd about how Marco and Benigno are almost kind of worshipping these women who are comatose. But it's just, 
I just find the characters interesting enough that it really grabs my attention, this film. Uh, And it's because I do get pulled in by the characters that when things go wrong with Benigno, I'm like, oh, no, please, no, 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 no. You know, it's... um, And I just feel so disappointed. (laughs) Uh, I'm sort of skirting around the fact of whether or not Benigno's guilty. The fact that he never denies it, and it's never really questioned. Means well, well, it's him then, right? Um, hmm. And so I don't know whether this was ever like a far fetched idea, but given this happened in real life just like a few months ago in Arizona in the United States, this thing too. It's a, it's um, distressingly a thing that could happen, and I fear maybe more widespread. But I just. It starts off in a way like I really want to defend Benigno because I mean the start of the film, not after what happens. Mm. Because he does seem to be caring and tender and while he's obsessed, it's like okay, maybe she's living in a fantasy land, but he's not necessarily harming anyone. And then that changes and it's that's the bit I was talking about like you understand like it's a two hour film where I like this character enough that I'm like, I really don't want to be guilty of this and I'm not defending him. Yeah. But, uh, so it's like, Is this weird, creepy stalker guy actually going to rape this person? <laughs> to be fair, he does seem the type. <laughs> Never really got a vibe of not being the type from him, to be honest. Uh, see, I, I didn't feel that. I, I just thought, okay, he's a slightly odd guy, but what's wrong with being that? It's like, this wasn't anything that, um, although weirdly, it's like I've got some cognitive distance going on there because when he starts following Alethea um, to her apartment, like, yeah, you're a super creepy bastard, but then it's like, at the same time, I'm seeing how he just seems to like be doing his job well and actually caring for her and stuff. And and now that I think about that, no, I don't like her at all. Yes. <laughs> it's like watching, it's like two different things going on in my head there entirely. That's just weird. Yes. <laughs> um, but no, I do like this one. And just, I, don't know, I just find the characters compelling. Um, odd, but there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and the the bits I've mentioned that you say you really see about the like the reasons for it. I mean, I guess there's, there's no excuse for what he did, obviously. But um, and maybe in the end, because he's done something to someone without their consent, um, it's irrelevant. But that the end of that seven minute short film um, where. The, it can be seen that the character, the male character in that is sort of giving himself over entirely to this woman and believes that doing that is oh, how would I put it? Like an act of devotion, almost selflessness. Um, again, it isn't. Please don't make the mistake <laughs> of thinking that I think this isn't any way acceptable. But, um, but I think that that's what that character believes. Um, yeah. I, I could see why you could absolutely not read it that way. But, yeah, I think maybe the fact that I didn't finish this thought I had just means my thoughts are actually quite muddled on this film. Uh, <laughs> I still I just found it really interesting. And I honestly don't know what else to say about it, though, because, it's, because what happens in it is particularly not nice. Yes. Um, and also, yes, I, I had the same issue that you did of basically, yep, still trying to kill beef. Beef did they hurt you? If you were killing beef, beef that's fine. <laughs> but you're killing beef for the sake of killing beef. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> but also, come on, the beef. Uh, 
yeah, it's. I I have no idea how to go on with that. It's it's a film that's apparently just caused some sort of schism in my head, and I've managed to separate two entirely different sections of the same character. <laughs> I'm only just putting them back together now. Uh, it's a while since I'd seen this and I watched this this time. I I don't think I'd forgotten it so much. It's like I didn't quite remember the the details and the tone as much as like the broad strokes I remembered. So I may as well have been watching it for the first time this time. Yeah. Uh, but it's absolutely a film I would watch again. Although it, and I, I would return to this long before I'd return to Time Me Up, Time Me Down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But of the films we're covering today, I suspect I would put it second bottom on the list of priorities. Yeah, um, I, I would agree. I, I don't think I'll return to this, to be honest. And uh, it, it's really hard to recommend anyone uh, watch it anywhere near the first of this list. Um, yeah, it just, had, it just didn't work for me. So it's a weird, creepy film full of weird, creepy people. And I uh, didn't feel like I learned or gained any insight into the human condition by it. It's just, yeah, some people are weird, creepy perverts. And that's a thing. So And they managed to become president of the United States somehow. <laughs> And you know what? That'll probably never age, that comment. No. <laughs> Evergreen. Yes. Not that I'm cynical at all. Okay. Um, let's move on to a film that I, I know at least I can um, get more strongly behind. Uh, and let's see if you can too, Scott. That's 2004's Bad Education. Yes. Note to self, stop giving myself the metatextually heavy films to recap as they are a pain in the ass. <laughs> right, anyway, on the first level, we are introduced to Philly Martinez's Enrique, a director struggling to find his next project. He is visited by a childhood friend, Gail Garcia Bernal's Ignacio, or Angel Andrade, as he'd rather be called. He's just finished writing a story, The Visit, based in part on their childhood experiences at a church boarding school they attended, and I'm sure you can see where this is heading. Uh, Initially dismissive, Enrique starts to read the story and soon decides to adapt it, with sections of The Visit playing out either through Enrique's reading or his production of it, telling of Ignacio and Enrique's childhood relationship and love, moving into Nacho's story as an adult, now of a drag artist and transgender woman called Zahara, also playing by Bernal. In this story, Zahara has a chance encounter with Enrique that prompts her to confront the priest who molested her as a kid in an attempt to blackmail him for money for gender reassignment surgery. Meanwhile, in what we call reality, Enrique has embarked on a physical relationship with Ignacio despite not truly recognising him as his childhood friend. For good reason, as it turns out, as we head into the final straight, where all, all sorts of revelations occur as the story and the truth are reconciled to a degree. Right. That's not 100% accurate, but it'll do for what we're talking about here. Right. Apparently, I was a little nonplussed by bad e- education 15 years ago. I'm a little warmer to it on this first rewatch since, which might be a case of forewarned being forearmed. Uh, the, the table stakes remain. It's a very well-acted and good-looking piece of filmmaking, but it falls into a similar groove as Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down and Life Flesh for me, in as much as the narrative, while compelling, gives some character motivations that are, well, weird and not very explicable, which hurts my investment in them. Um, in a way, it's too clever for its own good. If the characters were more cookie-cutter, I'd be more focused on the narrative, and that's a perverse complaint, to be sure. <laughs> the film would be better if it was worse, but I suppose that's the downside of a motivar being held to higher standards than McGee. That is one of the weirdest things I've ever heard you say, Scott. 
<laughs> so this is hugely watchable and technically excellent, to be sure. And I certainly like this more than Atomy or Live Flesh. Although, I would similarly, I don't know if I'd like them more in Rewatch. Uh, but this is well worth watching, even if you don't find the semi-sorta, kinda autobiographical elements of this in- interesting as a movie fan. But, yeah, going back to after 15 years... I still don't love it. Uh, I still do, which I was quite pleased to find out. It's been a while since I watched this. I don't recall the last time I watched this. I think this would be my third viewing. But this was uh, the very first Almodovar film I ever saw. And immediately I was like, yep, I like this guy. Uh, it doesn't help. It doesn't, doesn't know. It does help. It, it doesn't hurt at all that uh, I really, really like Gael Garcia Bernal. Yeah. And uh, this... I suspect it would have been the first time I saw him after Ito Mama Tambien. Right, yeah. I know that's like five years between them, but that's the first time I ever seen him after that. But I'd seen Ito Mama Tambien, loved that, really liked him. It was probably the reason I saw this more than anything else. And I just think it's great. It's, it is heavy on the metafiction. Yeah. You can stick your never-ending story. <laughs> this is heavy on the metafiction. Yeah. Um, and doesn't have anyone called billionaire Baltazar Getty or whatever his name was. <laughs> yes, yeah, I don't particularly disagree with most of what you said, Scott, other than just I seem to like it an awful lot more. Yeah, I remember at the time this being talked about a lot as being at least semi-autobiographical. Yes. I, re- I had this really strong feeling of it. And so when I was watching it, I guess, because it's been a while, I'm like, okay, so, right, the the director character, he's the Almodovar analogue, right? But wait a minute, pretty sure Almodovar wasn't involved in any sorts of murders. What's going on? <laughs> then I, like, I, I looked it up afterwards, like, I can find absolutely sod all evidence of it ever having been suggested that it was in any way um, semi-autobiographical. Hmm. Uh, so now I'm just confused. Yeah. <laughs> Where did that come from, um, apart from... Oh, I noticed this in your review from the one-liner day, so you obviously had it at the same time as me. That yeah. I had that impression, but I can't find any evidence of it now. So were we living in some kind of shared delusion? It wouldn't be the first time I'm wrong about something. So <laughs> no, I, I don't. I, I, like, I remember it, and your review confirmed it, rather than like it, mm. your review making me think that I had that it was that I was where it came from or anything. But yeah, again, I don't think it's as much of a character turn in this. But the the motivation doesn't necessarily make sense of why Ignacio does what he does. Well, not Ignacio, rather, sorry, Juan. Um, mm. And I, I think maybe that could be cleared up by just by having a little bit more of the of Ignacio um, and particularly his interactions with Juan. Um, it, it almost feels like there's a missing scene there that would just sell that more. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, I, just, I think it's just it's fantastically constructed. Again, saying the same thing, saying amazingly acted, beautiful film, and I just found the the narrative really compelling. And again, I, I'm sort of frustrated that I, once again reduced to this is a good film and I like it. It is good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't really successfully um, say much more than that beyond again beyond what you said, but just like with with me liking it more. It is ambitious and it's interesting and but yeah this this is still one of my favorite Almodovar films and was one of my favorite actors in it so it can't really go wrong for me. Yes, yes. 
Good, good. Shall we round things out by talking about a film that I will never not pronounce, Volver, now that I've found out how much it annoys my wife? Yeah, so we'll move on to the last film we're covering here, and actually, this is one I know exactly what to say about, um, and it's all good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In Bad Education, there is seen a movie poster for a fictional film called La Abuela Fantasma, or The Phantom Grandmother, which was, in fact, the working title for this film. Volver which means to return or come back in Spanish, and was left untranslated for the English market, begins in a small village in mountainous La Mancha, where Penelope Cruz's Raimunda joins the other women of the village in tending to and cleaning the graves. Job done, she, her daughter Paula, Joana Cobo, and her sister Soledad, Lola Duenas, visit their elderly aunt Paula, choose Lampreave, they are concerned for her well-being, as she is confused and infirm, but, well, she seems well-fed. This, though, they largely accept as being due to Aunt Paula's kindly neighbour Agustina, Blanca Portillo, who checks up on her daily. Certainly, they put little stock in the idea that she's being visited by the ghost of Raimundo and Sole's mother, who died in a fire four years earlier. Uh, despite what Aunt Paula says about her sister coming to visit her. The east wind is relentless in the mountains, and it's well known that it drives the people mad. <laughs> Returning to Madrid, Raimunda finds her husband, Paco, Antonio de la Torre, drunk, now unemployed, and, though she's unaware of it, leering over teenage Paula. This soon becomes a much bigger issue, as an unwelcome advance in Paula sees Paula in a state and Paco on the floor, with much of his blood on the outside. Raimunda takes charge and temporarily places Paco's body in the freezer of her neighbour's for-sale restaurant, the safeguarding of which he is entrusted to her willies in Barcelona. Life, with its customary inconvenient timing, the next day delivers another blow to Raimunda. Her beloved Aunt Paula has died, yet she can't leave to go to the funeral because you've, you know, the whole corpse in the freezer thing. <laughs> her sister Sole does return to the mountain village, though, and when she gets back to Madrid, she finds something... Rather unexpected in her car. <laughs> her mother, Irene, Carmen Maurer. Yes, you know, the dead one, that's right. Irene has unfinished business. Her daughters, though primarily Raimunda. But she swears Soledad to secrecy for now until the time is right, so hides out in Soledad's flat and pretends to be a Russian. As ghosts will do, apparently. <laughs> Irene and Soledad's relationship was difficult, but when mother and daughter are finally reunited, truths are told and families made whole. Bolver deals with some really weighty stuff, including parental abandonment, betrayal, illness and more. Not to mention death, dying, not being alive anymore and lack of life. (laughs) Yet it is so light, vibrant, joyful and funny without ever being flippant, suffering from tonal inconsistency or ever feeling like it is anything less than absolutely sincere. José Luis Alcaini's lush and vivid photography is complemented by a great score by Alberto Iglesias, and together they create a world in which I would happily spend yet more hours. But the film belongs to Penelope Cruz, who has never been better and without whom it's hard to imagine a film working even a quarter as well. She's radiant, captivating, beautiful. Glamorous yet also down to earth. Above all, she's sensual. A mass of dark locks and unconscious sexiness whose perfume you can almost smell. Forty years earlier and she'd have been Sophia Loren. But she's not here as an object of desire. Though there are men, very much in the periphery in this film, who desire her. For now she has much more important things to tend to. 
and all that she has to give is for her family and her friends. Pedro Almodovar is often considered a women's director, and it's truer than ever in Volver. Cruces Raimunda is hard-working, generous of time and spirit, determined, resourceful and never self-pitying, and, like the other women of the film, quite, quite capable of getting by without menfolk. For Raimunda and her friends and family, men are nuisance, men are threat, men are heartbreak, or men are irrelevancies. But it's not an anti-man film. The whole point of Volver is that it's simply not about them. The women here, both as actors and characters, are tremendous, real and engaging, believable, human, even if some of the things happening to them seem to come from the telenovelas that partly inspired the film. As I mentioned, Penelope Cruz is the film's centre, but I'll add some notes of praise for two others in particular. Carmen Maurer, who fell out with the director during Women on the Verge of an Nervous Breakdown and only returned to his films here, is mischievous as a Irene, and Lola Duenas' Sole displays so much melancholy and loneliness in her face alone that she doesn't even need to speak. The bright colours of Volver's palette, especially the red, signify passion, but passion for what? Many things. <laughs> Everything, perhaps. But I think mostly life. For a film about death in so many ways, it really isn't about that at all, nor any of the other bad things. It's about life and love, and it's magnificent. Yeah, it's a nice light-hearted knockabout <laughs> comedy about incest and murder, as they, as they so frequently are. <laughs> yeah, I love Volver. Um, liked it at the time, and I like it a lot more now, if anything. Um, I'm not sure I can really add much more than what you're saying there. Um, again, table stakes, really, really well acted. Looks fantastic. Um, this one, again, it takes a lot of what I... A lot of the kind of flourishes of bad education that were kind of sort of clever in the abstract but didn't really land for me absolutely land in Volver. An absolutely tremendous central performance. It's it's not perfect, if, if I'm going to be hypercritical about it. There are points that I almost wish that I hadn't brought up. Like there's a point where pa- Paula bemoans the fact that she's killed her father and you know, you don't know how that affects me. And I'm going, and I thought, yeah, that's right. I don't know how it affects you. I wonder how you're going to tell me over the rest of the film. You don't. She's barely <laughs> mentioned in it at all after that. So so it's certainly not examining absolutely everything that's going on in here, despite some pretty heavy events. Um, but somehow it gets away with it because uh, the, the tone of the rest of it is so light-hearted that I don't think it would really fit if they tried to explore any of that, which is, I don't know, maybe it's a case of special pleading for it, but it doesn't seem to harm the film at all when it's um, missing what could be fairly significant chunks about how it would affect some of the characters that are in it. But that would probably get in the way of the rest of it, which is, as you say, just a, a really warm-hearted look at families and friends and how these can pull together and be pulled apart and come back together um, in a way that feels... Actually, feels at least emotionally realistic, if not in the terms of the events, all of which are a bit um, hyper real, um, both in the past and in the present. But I think, in terms of an emotional truth, it gets a bit closer to it than perhaps a, a real narrative truth. That sounds a bit pretentious. What I'm trying to say is, I like it an awful lot. Um, <laughs> Um, yes, I, I liked it an awful lot and I can't really add much more than what you're saying there. Yeah, it's just a, a really tremendous and uh, warm-hearted film that has 
great love for its characters and shows them a great deal of respect, which uh, is reflected in my opinion of it. Yeah, really, really good. I was just scanning through the entry Wikipedia for this, and it, it being Wikipedia, it's spelled not well written, but also... <laughs> This, it ends the plops, the plop, the plop, the plop, the plot synopsis with the line saying that Irene reveals her presence to Agustina, who believes her to be a ghost. Uh, but then, I like reading the, all the plots of that, it's described her as a ghost in every single mention of her. So you know she's not actually a ghost, right? <laughs> Sorry to spoil things here, but it's not a ghost story. There's nothing supernatural about this. It's explicitly said in the film. It's not like we've got any kind of weird fan faces here. It's explicitly said that she's not a ghost. Yeah, as if it wasn't obvious anyway, <laughs> the fact that everybody else can see her and she's just pretending to be a Russian so that she doesn't give away the fact that she's Spanish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I know that doesn't have anything to do with anything and, and what you said, but I was listening to you, Scott. I just, I just, once again, I was just struck by the, by the nonsense that is on. They're obviously never wrong. Yeah. Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just a beautiful film. And it's one I could just watch endlessly. Hmm. And yeah, I think it's it's a good one to go out on. I think there's not much about um Almodovar's work I think that requires building up to or anything like that. You but you maybe appreciate more films. Um, if you'd seen some of, some of his style, mm-hmm. but he's he's a pretty accessible director, yeah. Um, and so you could dip in anywhere. But I still think the film we started with, "Women on the Verge of an Earth's Breakdown," probably is just a really good entry point to give you a real flavour. Mm-hmm. Although, if you were to only watch one, why I don't know. But if you were to only watch one, then "Roll There" is has to be the one that you go for because it's just it's a stunning film. Yeah, yeah, I would concur. Yeah, Volver is just an absolutely tremendous film. God, you can't can't really go wrong between that and uh, all about my mother as well. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I would I would concur. Yes, I would certainly think Volver is highly worth looking at. Have you somehow not done so already? And uh, certainly the easiest film to recommend of all this we've spoken about today. Okay, uh, about a little less in agreement than we we often are, but hopefully that makes for some interesting discussion of the films uh, I think we do agree on enough of them to give you a good couple to start with and if you are as a result of listening to this podcast give a listen to a listen yeah probably watch as well pretty official film uh, yeah. major film uh, if you um, check out Almodovar and hadn't previously done as a result of this please get in contact let us know what you thought do it through Facebook, although I would suggest not to because, well, Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash fudsandfilm, through email, podcast at fudsandfilm.com, or through Twitter, which is would be twitter.com slash fudsandfilm, or at fudsandfilm. I guess, well, I should just say goodbye, so hasta luego. Ta-da!